0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna,
1: and me, Frederick.
0: In this week's episode, we chat with Dan Robinson, research partner at Paradigm. We talk about his recent blog post entitled Ethereum is a Dark Forest a story about how he and some colleagues tried to save a transaction from the monsters that lurk in the mempool. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority is a team of security researchers, cryptographers, open-source developers, and privacy advocates. They are a security consulting company known for their dedication to pushing the limits on how to build privacy-respecting solutions. Mostly known for their security audits, like the ETH2 specification... Protocol Lab's Gossip Sub Protocol, Atomics Library, Wallet, and Smart Contracts for the Tezos Foundation, Blockstack's Investor Wallet, Centrifuge's Tinlake 3.0, and more. The Least Authority team is passionate about advancing the security of projects in the blockchain, cryptocurrency, and DeFi space. Importantly, these independent reviews improve the security of the technology. And what's more, when the reports are published, the broader community can benefit from the shared knowledge. This is also why Least Authority decided to sponsor this podcast— they recognize the potential for zero-knowledge proofs and protocols to improve the scalability of projects and the privacy of users. So if you're looking to further improve the security of your protocol and its use of cryptography, email Least Authority to book a no-obligations consultation appointment. The email address is leastauthority.com. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Least Authority. Now here is our interview with Dan Robinson. So today, we are talking with Dan Robinson, a research partner at Paradigm, and also someone who co-wrote a recent blog post called Ethereum is a Dark Forest. It's been doing the rounds. It's about the mempool, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. So welcome to the show, Dan.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Um, I guess before we we dig into the mempool stuff, which is an interesting story, I think, that I'm looking forward to, let's talk a little bit about what you do, what Paradigm is. So, you know, what is a, a crypto VC, I guess, and what is unique about Paradigm? Sure. So Paradigm is a crypto asset investment firm. And here I should mention
2: that um, I'm here speaking and representing my own views and not those of the the firm or of the fund. And nothing that I say on this, on this will be investment advice. Paradigm is a crypto asset investment firm. And we act kind of like a hybrid between a, a VC and a hedge fund in both making private investments in the cryptocurrency space and buying public tokens um, and holding them, uh, tokens like Bitcoin and ETH. We're, we're entirely crypto-focused. So everything, not only is every investment that we make crypto-focused, but we really sort of everyone on the investment team is, tries to be as technical and sort of as deep into it as possible. And we think that gives us an edge in terms of uh, the kind of investments we, we can make.
0: What makes it the crypto VC versus a traditional VC? What what does that mean? I know you mentioned, okay, so you're also partly a hedge fund, but just on the crypto VC side of things, how is working in this space different?
2: Yeah, so this this is my first job as a VC. Previously, I was a, I was a lawyer, actually, and then I became a, a crypto engineer at a company called Chain, which was acquired by Stellar. So I can't necessarily compare it to, to what it's like to be a generalist VC. I think it would be pretty different in that a lot of what we do Revolves around very sort of technical, either due diligence or value add. So the reason I think we're we're so focused on crypto, in addition to thinking that it's a really exciting space for investment, is just that personally for the for the whole investment team. So the firm was founded by Matt Huang from Sequoia and Fred, some who's one of the co-founders of Coinbase, and we've got a few other researchers and uh, investors on the team now. Um, everyone is just sort of personally passionately into crypto, and we think that. You know, that kind of obsession and that and that amount of technical knowledge kind of gives us an edge when investing in these companies and when helping them succeed. And that's something where like generalist investors they sometimes invest in crypto stuff, but they sort of don't know what to make of it.
1: Sort of a non sequitur, but uh something I've always been curious about, and your um your intro triggered it for me. <laughs> Who needs to say that they're not giving investment <laughs> advice? Because I always feel like it's either People on YouTube who aren't investment advisors and feel like they seem more legit by saying that they're not giving investment advice. Or it's people who are investment advisors and like want to make sure that it's like this is not investment <laughs> advice.
2: Yes. In this case, it's the latter. Um so it's a paradigm's a, a registered investment advisor. I do think in general, it's kind of like when someone launches a smart contract and then says, you know so our contracts are all insecure, you're going to lose all your money, this token won't have any value. And everyone's like, ooh, that means I really should invest in it. Um, so I worry about, the, about just sort of the, the reverse psychology of it.
0: Yeah. Georgios, who works with you, was on the show, also said it recently. And we, we haven't said it. I mean, I'll say it now to anyone who's listening. Nothing we say is investment <laughs> advice. I hope that's obvious. But I wonder
1: who can really give, get in trouble. Like if I were to give someone investment advice, like on this podcast, not that I ever have, but if I did, like, could I actually get in trouble for it?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. If it was if it was fraudulent, then yes. And I think a lot of what people when people do that is they're trying to cover their own ass in case something they say is wrong, either legally or or I'm not I'm not actually sure about the law around. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's not really a law that says like you, you you have to have a license to give to give investment advice like legal advice. But it's um, but yeah, I think they're trying to cover their own asses. No.
0: So I think now we should move on to the topic at hand, or one of the topics we wanted to cover in this episode, and that is the article that you wrote called Ethereum is a Dark Forest. And you wrote it and published it like a week after, I think, Dark Forest version 4 was released, or like right when it was coming out. Um, and I obviously, I, I mean, I, <laughs> good, good, good piggyback there, but tell me, in your case, you're using the term Dark Forest, like it's, it's a similar... I don't know how to describe it. You're describing something vaguely similar, but it's quite different from the the video game, uh, ZK video game, which, by the way, we've had on the show a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's great.
2: Yeah. So I think we both. I've talked to the to the Dark Forest guys, and we're both just fans of, I guess, Chinese science fiction, or particularly this this one series. And the whole series is great. I recommend it. The Three Body Problem. Yeah. The whole series is a very rich sort of fertile ground for, for metaphors. And there's a lot of other ones that I use in day-to-day conversation that are actually more obscure. But the Dark Forest metaphor, um, which is from the second book in the series, is, I just, is a really powerful one for thinking about these environments like crypto, where it's kind of a, a war of all against all. Mm. So with Dark Forest, in the context I was using it, in, and, which is also the inspiration for the game, is an environment in which there are such advanced predators out there, such monsters out there, that if you're visible, you'll be killed wow. almost guaranteed. And so the only solution to this is, is to try to hide. And then if somebody wants to destroy you, all they have to do is reveal your position publicly. Mm. And so in Dark Forest in the game, they depend on these uh, snark proofs, right? To And, and the, sort of the, the grinding to basically have private information about areas of space. And so that's a way to basically maintain this fog of war without which otherwise you just you just sort of have like constant, constant battle.
0: Totally. By the way, did you play this version, this last one?
2: I have not yet played Dark Forest. I'm really looking for it. I have some At friends all? who just spent all all their time on it. No, I've so not yet
0: I, j- I did it I did play last weekend for the first I mean I had heard about all the other versions and I had not yet jumped in and then I did and then it turned out to be a dangerous game for me. Because I love things like Civ and I love map games. I love resource management games. I have been addicted to like these grinding games, these these games where you have to like, you know, mine something for a long period of time and then wait (laughs) the timing. And then on top of it, built with ZKPs. And I think, I don't know how many people were playing, maybe 400, but like it's the zero knowledge proof community mainly there. So it was amazing. And except I only played like for right near the end. So I didn't, you know, rank. But next time. <laughs> anyway, yep. you guys should totally try it. Frederick, have you tried it yet? No, eh?
1: I have not. I have not gotten the time. But I i am, yeah. It's on your position. list. Like, uh, I, <laughs> what? It, it's one of the things, you know, obviously I want to play it. But it's also one of the things like I want to have the time to play it because yeah, I yeah. know That once I start playing it, I really want to, like, hack around, probably buy a super powerful machine, start grinding out hashes, and, like, actually just go gung-ho on it. But I I can't really do that now.
2: One of the best things about my job is that I will be able to credibly say that I'm playing this
0: game for uh, research. research. (laughs) (laughs) I felt the same way. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Very cool. Now, going back to what we were just describing, you know, you're using the term dark forest based on this book – to describe the mempool. And we did do an episode on the mempool, which is quite technical. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Maybe worth listening to just to get some context for what we're talking about here. And we want to kind of hear this story of what you tried to do <laughs> to basically like, you know, save save a transaction or save save someone from losing a ton of funds. But before we go into that story, let's do a few quick definitions. So What is a mempool?
2: So the mempool on Ethereum or on any blockchain is the set of transactions that have been published and are known by all miners or stakers or whoever's constructing blocks, but haven't yet been confirmed into a block. Mm -hmm. So the mempool is a technical detail of how nodes are implemented, but it's also a necessary one, at least naively, because you don't know where the next block is going to come from. So you have to basically tell... A lot of people in order to make sure that your that your transaction gets included, and so one of the the known issues with the mempool is that your transaction is public, and it's possible for somebody to create a transaction that gets in before your transaction with the knowledge of what's in yours. That's the dark forest environment that uh, that I'm into.
0: There's a way for someone to front run it or someone to take what's in that transaction and sort of use it themselves. I don't actually understand how that would work. Like, I do know that there's, you could maybe kill a transaction, maybe by like throwing up the same one with the same nonce. I don't know if that actually works, but like with a higher gas price. But like, is there, like, how would you take what's in it? So
2: by default, Ethereum miners order transactions in a block based on the gas price, a descending order of gas price, and so, if you see a transaction that's pending, someone has published it it's in it's in the mempool, and we use the term "the mempool," although of course every every node has their own has their own individual one, but basically by that i I mean it's just out there in the world waiting for someone to add it to and everybody sort of knows about it and is waiting to be added to a block once it's out there, somebody can submit a transaction with a slightly higher gas price and then if a if a miner sees it, they'll give precedence to that transaction and so for most transactions, possibly this won't matter. So for example, in, in a Bitcoin transaction, if I'm sending Bitcoin to somebody, there's no way for you to get a transaction submitted early that takes advantage of that or that prevents mine from being executable. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true for a normal like Ethereum ETH send as well, is that, you know, that's my ETH, you can't, you can't actually stop me from doing that. When it becomes an issue is when there's more complex, what's a term called minor extractable value, which is when you have something sort of going on in this transaction, where somebody knowing that you're doing this means they can get in and cause you to get a worse price on a trade or possibly cause a transaction to fail. And the fact that you've published this basically gives them valuable information in doing this. So the classic example is front-running on Uniswap. So if somebody makes a really large trade on Uniswap, you can do what's called a sandwich attack on this trade, where you put in a transaction before, which pushes the price up, and then and then they end up buying at a worse price. And then you put in a transaction afterward, which sells and basically locks in your arbitrage at a higher price because, because the user has pushed the price up. For a large enough user trade, you can make a profit just sandwiching someone's individual trade as a pure arbitrage profit.
0: Damn. And because it's public, you can actually see the transaction. You can see what they're trying to do. You can look at the price right now. The way to do this would be to do something to push the price up and make the gas more expensive so that it happens earlier
2: on your transaction you set you submit the transaction with a higher gas price So you yeah. choose the gas price of your own of your own tx and so yeah so you just basically submit a transaction that has a gas price that ensures that that transaction is included before the 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 one you're trying to attack and then you you include one that's after
0: are there tool like is that happening that must be happening all over the place and i can't imagine that it's like someone individually going and looking at this thing but are there bots that just do this
2: this happens all the time and i think on uniswap which is one of the most popular applications on ethereum or in crypto generally, there's a lot of real, a sort of really specialized ecosystem around arbitraging Uniswap specifically. And this isn't just doing like the sandwich tax. This is also getting the first trade in the block after the price has moved in the real world so you can get an arbitrage on it or RB between Uniswap and some other on-chain uh, trading, trading platform. But there are all kinds of bots out there for extracting all kinds of MEV. Anytime a, a protocol in DeFi does, basically does almost anything, quite often there's, there's some way for smart people on the mempool to take advantage of it. And this isn't always a bad thing. Like with Uniswap, the, the, the arbitrageur who trades as soon as the real world price moves, they're actually providing a very valuable service. They're an essential part of Uniswap working because they're the reason that Uniswap uh, always has an accurate price or a reasonably accurate price. Mm. So in some ways, good mechanisms are designed to take advantage of the fact that there will be parties out there who basically pick up these, these free pennies um, on the sidewalk. But then there are other ways in which in which it can be a bad thing. So these are there's, there's a lot of you know a lot of really smart people. I kind of picture them as you know sort of like Russians or um, just sort of in a in like a yeah like a basement somewhere just sort of like hacking on this. Like you don't you know you don't have to be in the ecosystem. I probably don't know the best black hat hackers or, or mempool people because um, yeah I'm, I'm sure they and they, I think they make crazy amounts of money if, from what I can see on the and the, what's happening in the mempool. Wow. But there's a more generalized form of this. This this is what I find really fascinating on Ethereum. There's a particular strategy you can do that doesn't, it, for a particular type of MEV, it can like always take it on any contract. And the the programmer doesn't even have to have, have, to have any idea what the contracts are doing. Like, it could be a new contract with new code, but for a particular kind of M- MEV, this bot can detect it and pick it up. And this was what this is what led to this uh, story that I that I published with JoJo's a month and a half ago, where in which we we called Ethereum a dark forest.
1: We have an episode, a previous episode that explains sort of the technical aspects of mempools. Um, but back then, I mean, uh, this this was years ago. This episode, and even back then, we were seeing something like a thousand transactions per second just from bots outbidding each other, right? So that's also an interesting thing is like these bots get into war with each other. So like if there is minor extractable value, then one bot will detect it, inject their transactions. And then another bot will detect it, say, I'm going to bid one way higher gas than you and inject their transactions. And then the first bot replaces there. So like a node is actually churning through thousands and thousands of transactions per second, sometimes just between like two bots fighting each other to get the final thing in and then eventually one bot gives up because they say well this is not profitable enough for me anymore
2: that's right so there's this thing called a priority gas auction which is when a bunch of sophisticated parties see some mev or one of them sees it and this triggers other ones to start of to, to go after it and you know i don't think i'd be able to successfully participate in a, in a priority gas auction i think these are these are highly specialized predators here figuring out how to how to how to win these against against other bots absolutely like them and how to minimize their costs if they lose yeah, so that, that's part of what makes the mempool really scary, I think, is that not only are these are they picking off um, individual users, but even they aren't safe from other from other predators. Oh.
1: Uh, and there's another interesting angle, too, is I would assume, at least, that basically all of them use gas tokens. So they're not actually paying the same gas price as you are. So they have a completely different playing field as well in how they engage in these transactions.
2: That's right. So they can they can set a high gas price on their transaction, but they don't pay all the gas that the transaction would cost because they're exactly they're redeeming a gas token in the same transaction.
0: And by gas token, do you mean like gas token the thing, or is it a type of thing?
2: There's a few there's a few instances of gas token. Um, the original one was designed by Phil Dion, who's also uh, one of the researchers who coined the term MEV and is one of the experts on the the mempool and, and front running and all these things. But gas token, for, for those who don't know, it's it's a trick that takes advantage of how Ethereum uh, measures gas costs to be able to basically to get a refund on gas at exactly the time that you want it. Yeah. So you can basically prepay for gas by storing some junk state on the Ethereum um, <sighs> blockchain and then later get the gas back in the transaction where you want to use it, potentially one with a much higher gas price.
0: Is, that kind of, is it kind of like an averaging product? Like it sort of means that gas prices won't spike, but you may sometimes be paying a little more or are you always paying less?
2: you typically probably wouldn't use a gas token if you could buy one at the at the same price that you'd be paying for the gas. So it's sort of like almost an option on gas at a, at a particular price, right, and, at any huh. given time. It's one, one, one way to, to think about it or imagine pricing it. But I think it does probably tend to have a leveling effect on the price of gas, although I'm not sure if that's played out in practice. And because it's it's mostly used by these, by these weird games, like Fossil could have the opposite effect.
0: I think
1: it averages the the bots' costs for gas, but for the general public, it's probably not that big of an impact. Hmm. So I think we've we've walked through the the basics here and the the primitives. So tell us what the experiment that you did was. What was the what was it that you did in the blog post, and and uh, what did you find?
2: So this was a situation that I found myself in which I'm not usually in because I'm I'm mostly not a white hat hacker. I don't spend a lot of time trying to break other people's contracts. So what happened was I heard about somebody having sent Uniswap liquidity tokens into the Uniswap contract itself. And this is one of the most common mistakes that people will make on Ethereum is sending ERC-20 tokens to the token contract itself or to some other ERC-20 contract or some contract where they can't recover it. And so this was basically a fat finger error. And usually this is unrecoverable, but I realized after thinking about this for a bit that in this very particular instance, the tokens that they'd lost which were worth around $12,000 could be recovered, not just by them, but by anyone. There was a function on the Uniswap contract that they could call, which would actually withdraw the liquidity for them and give them all the all the liquidity um, that's worth you know, around $12,000. And since anyone could call this I could call it and I could just be a, be a white hat hacker and, and pick up this money and give it to them. But I knew because of the nonsense that goes on in the mempool that this actually wouldn't be that easy. Mm. So I was lucky that I'd, I'd heard about this from Phil Dion a few years ago, the same researcher um, who created gas tokens and the term MVV. He told me a story over beer about in, an encounter with, with something that he called a generalized frontrunner. So a specialized frontrunner is the kind of frontrunner that we were talking about before, which is written by a programmer to sandwich a trade on Uniswap and make a profit. And this depends on some human intention around looking at a mechanism, figuring out that it's, that it's broken in this particular way mm. and constructing a pattern matching bot that will automatically take some action in response to saying something. A generalized frontrunner doesn't just look for one particular kind of MEV. It looks at every transaction... In the Ethereum mempool, and then simulates what would happen if they sent that transaction instead of the user.
0: Wow. And I guess for most of them, they're for most of them, they're just like, this is useless, it wouldn't do anything. Exactly. But once in a while,
2: right. Wow. So for most transactions, this will fail. For some transactions, they just run this and they see, oh, my ERC20 balance in this token increased and I didn't pay anything. And it was worth it was wow. worth the EtherC- that I would pay for gas. And when this happens, they just front run your transaction. They just submit a transaction with a slightly higher gas price that, get, that is generally guaranteed to get in before yours. And so this is only an issue for a very particular kind of MEV. And this is where there's like a function that anybody can call. And that's, that's not every kind of MEV by any means. You know, It's, it's not, probably not most kinds of MEV, but it was the situation I was in because there was this function on, on the Uniswap core contract that anyone could call and get this money out.
0: Do you think, though, is it, is it always mistakes, like those things that one could front-run? Is it always an error, or is it sometimes purposeful? I would think
2: it would usually either be a mistake, a result of a mistake as it was here,
0: yeah, or
2: a bug in, in a smart contract. So like relatively often when there is an exploit, one of the problems is that exploiting it yourself – could potentially get front run by something like this because it's in the nature of an exploit, not every exploit, but in a lot of exploits, that anyone can do them. Yeah. It would probably be a bad idea to design a mechanism on-chain that really depends on people not being able to do this because it's it can you know anyone can call this, could have called this function at any time and pick up the money. So you shouldn't really design it so that like anyone could pick it up because then because then anyone might. But the funny thing is in this case, the money had been sitting there on chain for eight hours before I had this thought that I, that I could go pick it up. And I went and checked and it was still there. So there was this function, the documented function on the contract that anyone could just call and get and get the money out. No one had. But I knew that about these generalized smart contract front runners in the mempool. And as a result, I knew that if I tried to pick it up, which is like transaction sending to it, it would get sniped. Yeah, And so the mempool is even scarier than the Ethereum smart contract s- state, which is pretty scary already. <laughs>
0: Wow. So okay, so you you were there, you saw this problem, you you realized there's a solution, but then kind of luckily also realized that if you just went for it blindly, someone would see it and then front run you on uh, you attempting to save it.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like like you as a human s- see this, right? But the bots only like they they're not going around analyzing contracts. They're not actually yeah. smart. They're not actually finding these things. So no one else was looking at like the, the actual contract and then this in-depth. But you have a bunch of these predators who are just looking for, like, how are you moving? And then based on how you're moving, like determining where you're going and then going in the same direction.
0: Exactly. Damn, I'm so and seeing some similarities now to the Dark Force game. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's cool.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so it's a really fascinating situation, but then it was it was a somewhat scary one to be in. There was also a ticking clock because if anybody removed liquidity from this pool the normal way, then either they would get the liquidity, they'd get this, this money out, or the front runners would see the would see the call and they would actually and the front runner would end up getting it out. Either way, it wasn't likely to get back to the person who had accidentally sent it in. Hmm. So in order to try to recover this money, I talked to some smart contract security researchers, including Samsung, Scott Bigelow, some experts on the mempool and on smart contract security. And we formulated this plan, which, which involved basically a lot of unnecessary steps, needlessly complicated scheming to try to hide from the, the bots, the call that we were actually trying to make. Mm-hmm. And so I obviously couldn't call the contract directly with my transaction, but I also couldn't just put up a contract and call the contract um, that would, that would make the call. Because you you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that just by looking at my transaction that I was even interacting with Uniswap, But if you ran my transaction and simulated it, you can see every internal call that I make. And what these bots could do is run the transaction, do an execution trace of it, and uh, simulate not just if they sent the transaction, what would happen, but if they did every call internally, what would happen? And so that wouldn't be enough obfuscation on its own. Basically, they could extract that I had done this call Simulate it and then just do a transaction that makes a call doesn't even go mm-hmm. through my contract.
0: And there's a belief that these generalized bots would be doing that. They would actually run every call.
2: I didn't know exactly whether they would, but basically in this in this scenario, we had to sort of think like an attacker and say, mm-hmm. okay, if we built a bot like this and we had a lot more resources and we're a lot smarter, like these uh, people are, this is how we would do it. And mm-hmm. so we figured that wouldn't be enough to prevent to prevent this this call from being from being front run. Our step actually involved deploying two smart contracts and splitting the transaction that activated them into two transactions, which we tried to submit into the same block. And the idea was, hopefully, a generalized frontrunner would simulate these transactions separately. If they simulated them in, in sequence, then they would see that the second one actually did the rescue call. But if they simulated them separately then the transaction, the second transaction would fail and they wouldn't actually, without calling the making the call to Uniswap. So that was the hope is that the bots weren't smart enough to actually detect us.
0: And was the the individual, like the first entity calling it, I guess your address or something, like, did you also split that or did you just split the contracts?
2: Yeah, we called from two different and uh, externally owned accounts. Got it. And uh, made these calls to two separate contracts, one of which would like activate the contract that would actually do the rescue and the other which we would call a contract that would then call that contract which would then do the rescue and we hoped you know these transactions don't look at all related cool um the different gas prices and everything but uh the diff- different senders called different contracts but yes if you ran them both then you would, then you would see this so unfortunately we didn't manage to get both transactions in in the same block mm. the strategy was not itself fully tested um, we didn't see whether it would have worked if we got in both transactions to the same block. The second one ended up in a, either the next block or, or maybe a couple blocks after that.
0: I can understand the architecture of the action that you're trying to perform, but like yep. why in the same block? Do they have to be se- sequential? You don't want anything in between or?
2: Well, so what actually happened was we got the transac- the first transaction in one block, right? Okay. But as a result, the second transaction, when run against the current blockchain state, when se- when some... Minor- when some Generalized front runner was trying to look at what it would do. The second transaction would make that internal call to Uniswap. Yeah. When they when they ran it against the current state. And so the reason we wanted it in the same block was on the hope that the generalized frontrunner wasn't running all the transactions in that block, which would be, which would be somewhat more computationally intensive. That running all transactions of the mempool in sequence. Or constructing candidate blocks and running them and seeing what happened in each transaction in them. We were hoping they were running the transactions individually. So this didn't work. We actually got front run. Okay. Um,
0: Which part got front run though?
2: The second transaction. The second transaction was basically an, it was a naked call. It, it was, it, it was routed through two contracts. So it was, it was like a, a nested internal call. But nevertheless, when you ran the transaction against the current blockchain state, it resulted in the Uniswap burn call being made, the call that could that could be used to pick up the free money. Mm-hmm. And so we were basically sitting ducks with that transaction in the, in the mempool by itself. And so the transaction did get, get your front run. Some crazy bot came in and burned a bunch of gas tokens and, and picked, up the, picked up the money.
0: Damn. Did your first one go through correctly? And then it was the second one that they front runned and then they, because the second That's one right. was the yep. one where you actually got that. Okay. That's, That's right. Bummer.
2: So, you know, this was a strange experience because while we were, we were spending like hours trying to, you know, write these contracts and, and write the script that would, that would submit them and test it. And this, this whole time, you know, we, it felt a little like being paranoid or like we were like, why are we, does it actually make sense for us to be, to be doing all this? And we knew intellectually this is a huge risk that, 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 this, that this would happen. But it wasn't until it actually happened that you could really believe it. You know, like in the, in the beginning of A Quiet Place where the, the kid gets eaten by the monster? In like in like the the, the flashback or the or sort of the prehistory, so I think the reason they do that in the movie is otherwise everyone's going to look really stupid being super paranoid about saying
0: anything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the reference, but
2: okay. This is this is a movie where where aliens are on Earth that that detect sound, and so you have to be really quiet, and you, okay. you, you can't talk. So there's like very little dialogue in the whole movie. Yeah, but like that it's it's, it's a situation like this where basically being detected means death, but. Until that happens, you can't see the monsters around. You just sort of know they're there.
0: Wow. And I guess you were you not sure exactly like were you exactly sure on how the bots work? Is there a deep understanding about how these work or is it sort of a mystery monster like a a, a big unknown? When this post was published, I think it surprised a lot of people. And
2: it surprised me when I first heard about these bots uh, before because this is a case where this and like White Hat Hacks are sort of the, the cases in which this particular kind of MEV comes up and where this kind of generalized front-runner happens, and most people don't encounter that on a daily basis. There's There was some lore in the White Hat hacker community around what these bots could do. It's not all public. Like Not even everything that's known about how they work is public, in part because that would leak alpha, basically, where if White Hats actually do have to get one of these transactions included... Um, the tricks that would work in this case, because our trick didn't work, we we felt comfortable publishing um, publishing this and thought that the, that it was worth scaring everybody. But um, we've we've considered, and we actually have we have a research budget that hasn't yet been used to kind of map out this dark forest and figure out what these bots can actually pick up on and what they can't.
1: It'll be interesting to see because, like, it, it's sort of the same thing as in the the hedge fund world or like the the general trading world where there are a bunch of open source bots that can do automated trading in in various ways, but they get published because they don't work anymore, because they're not not profitable anymore. And then, but you know that whatever a real hedge fund is using is this at its basis, but with some variation that now makes it profitable again. Mm. And so you kind of know what the scene looks like, but you don't know exactly, you don't know what exact models they're using because then they wouldn't be profitable.
2: Right. And to be honest, I think this obfuscation tactic is doomed. There's, there's just going to be no way that that just, even like with a, with a sequence of different transactions and hash pre-commits and um, all kinds of like and ways to get, it, to get in the way of, of these being detected, it's ultimately, it's unsolvable and like the, the bots are going to win this arms race. And the reason you can say this is because for our rescue to be successful, a transaction had to be included in an Ethereum block that made this call at some point internally to Uniswap. And that, that is the necessary condition for us, to, for us to win, right? And as a result, because we were submitting this to, the, to these miners' mempools, some miner had to be able to construct a block mm. that did this. And if a miner can do it, then the attacker can do it. Yeah. And so if, if these, you know, I'm not sure whether they have enough computing power right now to really be like, to be, to be constructing blocks fast enough to always, to always get this
1: but that's sort of inevitable. But, yeah, I think so like it, it they'd certainly pretty close. So, I mean going back to what you were running your your whole thesis was that if we have these two separate transactions and they both get included in the same block, the theory is that they're not constructing and executing a whole block because then again they would see that call being made. But just running one transaction against the current state and, you know, if they did this for each of them individually, they'd run the first one, see, oh, this only activates a contract, it doesn't give it, give me any money. The second one, oh, it just calls this contract and nothing happens from that, right. so it doesn't give me any money. But constructing and executing a whole block takes on the order of, like, 100 to 300 milliseconds, and the block time is, like, 15 seconds, so you have a lot of time to construct and execute full blocks. And this is with, like, a a mining clients and there are many clients and and like EVM EVMs that aren't in production but are way way faster. So if you were like on a hyper experimental like I just want to simulate shit, you could do it way faster than that, probably down towards like 10 to 50 milliseconds. That gives you a lot of simulated blocks per like block round chance.
2: That's that's right. And you can imagine this running as like a cluster of of Huge high high memory nodes on on AWS like there's there's really sort of no limit on on how on how parallel for example this could be right
1: yeah and
2: so so that's that's why I say like I don't think I don't think there's a way actually to obfuscate your transaction when ultimately at some point an internal call is to be made that is that you're trying to hide there's no way to hide it because ultimately yeah they can just do whatever a miner does and do it maybe like ten times in parallel with different combinations of of transactions in the mempool who knows and I think that's that ultimately is why that's a dead end the way to do it uh, right now. The cutting edge on this is submitting the transaction directly to a miner, so it gets included in a block without ever touching the mempool or wow. being published to anyone else.
0: Yeah, I was actually I was gonna ask like if the miners run this themselves, then that would skip this problem. I guess
2: <laughs> I don't know if that's actually how it works, but like Yeah, So, so okay, so yeah, so, there's, there's, so first I'll talk about I think um, white hat miners and like miners being able to be. To be really helpful in actually being able to do this, um, and this is something that actually happened uh, subsequent to subsequent to our pose. And then I'll talk about the the future and why that why it might be worrying if miners start to uh, essentially try to extract this value themselves. So the best way to ensure that your transaction doesn't get sniped by any of these bots is just not to show it to them and to have it be included in a block um, without ever being published to anyone, with only being in the mempool of this of like a single mining node. So if you happen to be an Ethereum miner or you're like close friends with one, you can basically get them to include this manually in their, in their blocks without propagating it. When we were in this situation, like we didn't know any miners. We, so we were, we had to, had to make do in the, in the public mempool. A couple of weeks later, Sam's son, the person who we, who Paradigm just hired the start to start that contract security researcher actually found a bug in a, in a DeFi contract that put him in a similar situation, except with $10 million on the line instead of 10,000. Whoa. And the way he got out of it was pulling an all-nighter with some other people in the security community and miners to be able to, inc- to actually get this included in a block without ever wow. being published. And so this, this is a great story. It's, it's, a, it's a follow-up sort of kind of sequel to my, to my Dark Forest post. Um, this post is called Escaping the Dark Forest. And that's actually what they did. They got a transaction included that skipped... The mempool, and sk- therefore skipped all these monsters.
0: Is that actually published? I don't think I saw it. Yeah, I'm yeah, gonna... yeah. Cool. So that's... I'll, we'll definitely include that then. Cool. Yep.
1: Th- this is, in general, a very controversial topic because it's it's been often discussed of should miners have like their own private network among amongst each other because that would lower uncle rates and we could. Increased blocks and you know a bunch of other things, but then you're obviously centralizing between these just these miners and Cabal. yeah, yeah. exactly like you're forming this <laughs> yep. this strange thing but in in an interesting way um you can sort of have the best of both worlds if you go proof of stake because then the validator set is known it will change by the protocol, but the set is at least known so you could submit something to just this set
2: that's true although although then you have to so. In that case, you have to trust that the stakers that you're submitting it to aren't going to take the MEV themselves. And yeah. this is true of miners too. If you give this to the mempool, in this case it was SparkPool, and, and they, they were honest and published a transaction uh, in the block without, without sending it to the mempool. If they're honest, then you're, then you're fine and this, this is a great situation. If they just chose to, to extract it themselves, there's nothing you could do about it. And so you do have to reveal this to somebody. Now, I think it's a, it's a better situation than having to reveal it to everybody. And generally, I think miners so far have tended to act in, in a kind of rationally altruistic way with respect to, to not kind of extracting MEV them, uh, themselves. In the future, I think that's likely to change, in part because if you're a miner extracting MEV, you can get so much value potentially from that MEV that that can offset your, your computation costs and, and make you a more competitive miner. And so miners that don't try to do this in any way will get competed out by those that do.
0: Oh no. But wait. When you say a miner, like it can't be just one miner can actually do this better, right? Cuz you need a lot of miners to accept this too. It's like so I don't actually understand like do you have to have a pool? How does it work that you'd actually get these miners to do it?
1: Well, it's always a it's a it's still a valid block. So, like by the protocol, the other miners would accept it. Sure they could run their own analysis and reject it, but that's then you're breaking the protocol.
2: Right, right. So Exactly. So, so it's one mining pool that we, that, that they submitted this to Spark pool. Yeah. And, you know, they, they might, I don't know what percent, maybe 20% of Ethereum blocks. So that ensured that this transaction would get included at least like relatively soon. And then once it's included mm-hmm. in a block, yeah, the other miners build on it, um, same way they normally do. But, but this is a, this is a risk and potentially one that could destabilize the consensus process itself because, if one of those other miners was really malicious, what they'd do is they'd roll back, they'd fork out your block, they'd look at your block, see the MEV in it, fork back, build on top of, of its parent block, and in- include, the, include the transaction and extract the MEV from it, and then and then continue. And this means that potentially you'll have this war happening not between front runners, but between miners. Whoa. Where they're all trying to fork each other out and all trying to destroy each other. And that that the the war between frontrunners is mostly only shows up for the end user as being like this weirdly high gas costs um and sometimes sometimes transactions do weird things this would show up as quite often having having rollbacks and contests so that would be quite
0: Damn troublesome weird. and
2: we're not in that situation yet but it's it's possible if maybe gets gets too um big without without other ways of addressing it
0: is there any way to prevent this i guess somebody's got to be doing some research in that direction
2: a lot of people are, if you are working on this, um, please reach out to Paradigm. You can reach out to me at Dan at Paradigm.xyz um, or find me at Dan Robinson on Twitter because we love make, we love talking to people who are interested in this space and we're interested in making investments um, in this. A few of our portfolio companies are working on ways that could, that could potentially, um, that could mitigate this
1: i think there's a lot of i've heard a couple of different proposals i mean there are zk versions of these proposals to avoid front running but there's also like some some companies have reached out to us to use like the um, parity secret store which is like the miners could deploy a distributed key generation mechanism so that you can actually encrypt the state of transactions, but miners can still decrypt it, run it, m- make sure that it's valid, include it, all this mm. stuff. So you're, it's kind of like this idea of just sending it straight to the miners, but you're sending it to the public, just encrypted, and the miners can decrypt it.
2: So, of interest to your listeners, there's a lot of ways that potentially cryptography could be used to ensure to ensure that transactions can't be read by the miners, and you, they won't know what's going on in them until after they've been included yeah. in a block. In addition to encryption, another way you could do it is. VDFs, so verifiable delay functions. If, for example, every transaction itself had to have a VDF on it that was like 15 seconds, that would mean that nobody would be able to create a transaction in response to one that's already in the pool. Mm. If every trans- if a transaction if a transaction had a time lock encryption on it that prevented it from being seen for 15 seconds, then it would be included in the block, potentially not decrypted until after. You don't know what the state of the block is until after the block has already been constructed. But these are generally ways of of separating either separating... Um, transaction inclusion order from transaction execution or blinding whoever is executing or, or sequencing the transactions from what they're actually doing
1: hmm. yeah and they all, they all have various trade-offs in, in terms of like centralization, complexity you know UX if you have a VDF on everything and like oh yeah, it starts getting really complicated <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah it, it's I think it's an interesting space I haven't uh, dug super deep into it but there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can do there
0: is this an Ethereum problem? Is this a only for Ethereum problem? Is this a problem that every blockchain is going to have or has?
2: Bitcoin has mostly avoided this problem because there isn't all that much MEV on Bitcoin. So if you, like we talked about before, if you submit a transaction, uh, just spending your Bitcoin, yeah. no one else can submit that transaction. Nobody else can, can basically do anything to interfere with it. As we start to see more things built on Bitcoin, like Lightning, for example, a payment channel provides a, a way to get MEV. It's, it's it's a it requires quite a lot of work from the miners. It's much more than just front running a transaction. It requires censoring for potentially a long period of time. But that's one way in which miners could potentially extract value by manipulating transactions in the pool yeah. in a way that could ultimately um, both mess with Lightning and mess with con- with Bitcoin consensus generally. Mm-hmm. Another way is just the transaction fee itself is a kind of MEV. Including a transaction with a very high fee is is obviously minor extractable value, right? And actually, there's a paper called On the Instability of, of Bitcoin in the Absence of the Block Reward, which talks about how if transaction fees are the main way that Bitcoin miners are, are are paid, then it becomes much more profitable to do weird strategies where you roll back other people's blocks in order to steal the high transaction fee transactions that are in them.
0: Okay, And
2: that this could potentially... And then Then you get into games where leaving you might want to leave transactions in the pool so you don't get rolled back, and ultimately there's there's not really an equilibrium to this, and so it it results in this instability of the of the consensus system itself. So I do think as miners get more sophisticated and competitive, even on on simple chains like Bitcoin, this this will be a problem, and it certainly will be a problem on any smart contract chain that uses roughly Ethereum's model of. You know, um, trans- the contracts are public, the transactions are public yeah. in a mempool.
0: Well, this also, I mean, I guess this will carry forward onto any sort of ETH2 or sharded blockchain as well, would
1: it? Yeah, and and I think uh, the, the only thing that, that we've talked about on this show that I think starts to address this is like Zexy, where contracts are private, the calls to those contracts are private, and like everything down that line. But then, yeah, completely different model of programming and interacting and everything else.
2: It is also, in theory, the miner could just say to users, you have to unblind your transaction to us. So if the user is capable of unblinding a transaction, so this is, this is kind of a hard problem. Maybe you could do something with deniable um, uh, encryption. I don't know. But if a user is capable of unblinding the transaction of showing the, the miner, then the miner could potentially extort that out of them. Hmm. This, I mean, this is just a really hard problem. There's a, it's just like game theory in what's in some ways an iterated game, but in some ways a free-for-all and this competitive dynamic, what scares me most is the is the issue that it really doesn't matter how honest and proof of work like miners are, because ultimately the least honest ones, the most extractive ones potentially will win. Wow. Um, and will will win not just like like win these races, but also just like just like outcompete the honest ones. And so that's a that's a very worrying situation. This is all under the general metaphor of, of Moloch, which is a popular metaphor in, in Ethereum of basically coordination failures and and Competition leading to what ultimately is kind of like a, like a really scary uh, environment like the ethereum mempool is now,
1: yeah yeah because like even in uh if you paint a an extreme scenario where if I'm submitting a transaction to a dex, then I also have to be running a bot <laughs> to make sure that that gets in at the price that I want and etc even in that world the miner still has the advantage and can just like, he doesn't have to pay a fee because <laughs> he would just Absolutely. be paying himself.
0: Would this also affect POS systems? Cause like their miners are taken out. And I know you just mentioned, you gave this example of like validators, but like, has there been, has that been considered in a POS context?
2: So POS is almost the opposite problem where in proof of work, because anyone can show up and compete, that's one of the best properties of it. It's also one of the scariest because it means ultimately that you know, some malicious party might actually end up being the best able to pay for electricity with their MEV profits, mm-hmm. right? And be able to essentially take over the chain. Proof of stake is um, is sort of the opposite. It's much more entrenched in that the large owners of stake and and those that they they've delegated to ultimately are more. They're they're harder to displace. Hard, you know, you can't just have some random party come in. Um, with a with a better strategy and beat them because they don't have all they don't have all the stake yeah. and it's hard for someone new to come in and buy up all that stake from them they'd have to sell it but as a result this does mean that if ownership of your of your coins does get captured that potentially the, the whole chain is basically locked down and, and ultimately if that if that turns out to be a corrupt oligarchy that's running the the chain then
0: trust is um, lost completely I guess yeah yeah,
2: yeah. and huh. decentralization is lost and potentially you know and, and censorship resistance and so I do think in the in the medium run, proof of stake will likely work a little better than proof of work um, in this because it doesn't have um, the competition just isn't isn't as fierce. But ultimately, I, I don't think it's an ideal situation to have basically trust that these that these large whales have the chain's best interest at heart. Yeah.
1: No, I think I mean they they still have to be considered malicious, right? I mean that's how you always have to build a protocol. You have to consider all validators malicious, or yeah, at like at a base level, and then you hope that two thirds of them aren't. <laughs> but it's still interesting because, like, I don't know, in the miner world, the miners are known. Like, if Spark Pool gets a bad reputation because they're doing this bad shit, yeah, you have the same kind of effect there. Like, the the people who use that pool is going to move away, and so you same thing with validators who are getting a lot of nomination. Like, if they behave badly, maybe people nominate someone else. Although we aren't really seeing that. We're not seeing nominations being that sophisticated. We don't see nominations that have the chain's best interests in mind. And so I wonder if we get to that point or like if it's, I don't know, currently all nominators are just basically people who seek higher interest rate than their bank will give them. Yeah. So
2: I think that, that, that's one
1: of the big structural risks for proof of stake long
2: term it's It's also a risk for proof of work, and I mean right now proof of work partly works because the mining pools tend to be um yeah long term rational where basically they they know you know and this is true on Bitcoin and ethereum they know that doing things like like double spending attacks and rolling back the chain or or really aggressive extraction of m e v could basically break the chain itself and mean that like their all their mining equipment is worthless right hmm. and this is similar for proof of stake where yeah, there's, there's probably some abuses you can get, or you can get into at the edges, but if the consensus set gets too dominated by someone and they start extracting uh, too much from it, then it kills the chain and ultimately their coins are worthless. And so, like, arguably this, this has maybe happened to EOS, where I think the, the perception that block production is, is centralized or, or uh, cartelized, um, and run, run by a small group has meant that the, the chain itself has been less competitive.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like this is a a space that, you know, there's no conclusions yet. There's still a lot of research to be done and we have to keep our eye on it. It's been kind of fascinating to even visit this part of the 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 blockchain world. I had not spent much time thinking about it until your blog post and and even more so now in this in this interview. To sort of switch gears for this last point, you're in this role where you do research for this VC firm, you're, you're spending a lot of time kind of like communicating this outward. And I wonder like what your feelings are about that. Like, do you find it, is that, do you sort of see that like this blog post that you wrote, like creating the story out of it? Do you find this like something that's important for you to be doing or your firm?
2: Absolutely. And it's really what made me excited about joining a, a firm in the first place is, well, first there's this intake step where basically I get to a very sort of broad overview because, you know, we have people coming and pitching us. I'm looking, I'm out there always looking for, for potential new investments um, or developments that are, that are meaningful to our existing investments. And so I get, so I feel like I get this kind of perspective where I get to see a lot of ideas and then process and pick out some of them and then try to communicate them to a broader audience, basically in, in order to make it easier for, for more projects to, to form that are working on these things. So mm-hmm. this is a lot of what I've done in DeFi. Is sort of publishing out papers with like DeFi ideas, and this happened. I published a paper called the Yield Protocol, and then ultimately an entrepreneur came that wanted to build it, and we and we're actually incubating them now. And so this has this is this is meaningful effects on for the fund. But with the MEV post, also we were basically trying to seed startups out there to be like, look, this is a serious issue. It's potentially gonna gonna threaten um, crypto. We think there could be both promising investments. And potentially really important ones to be made in this area. And so it's kind of a call for startups to, to do this. Yeah. And so trying to, to some extent, set the agenda on it or, or get these ideas out there, we think is really valuable. And in these cases, much more valuable than like keeping this alpha to ourselves would be because ultimately paradigm really depends on the crypto space working. Mm-hmm. That's the most important um, factor for, for us being successful. Cool. And so anything we can do to kind of advance that, including, including inspiring these new projects. Um, is worth it, even if we don't capture the gains, even if we don't actually make investments in them.
0: Do you sort of see though the strength in adding that emotional side of it, the storytelling, the metaphors? Like I, it takes it a little bit away from the technical, but I actually think it's incredibly useful. It's not done that much. I feel like it's kind of missing.
2: Absolutely, and I, you know, I used to read. There's there's a fantastic book called The Cuckoo's Zag, which is about tracing a hacker. In like late 80s, you know, using on, on, like on the computer's Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick, there's like great sort of hacker fiction or sorry, hacker nonfiction that's actually quite thrilling to read, even though it gets into technical stuff that, you know, you have, you have no idea about. But when you explain it really in terms of this story, you don't really have to. Yeah. And in fact, it's much more interesting than like the fic- fiction about hackers is. Um, where, you know, they got a million screens and they're just like typing on uh, two people <laughs> on keyboard, right? Numbers
0: down the screens vertically. Yeah. And I think
2: <laughs> and what, what, one of the most rewarding things for me of publishing this story was the people who, who didn't know anything about crypto at all. Maybe weren't even interested in crypto even after reading the piece, but thought it was a fun kind of cyber thriller.
1: Cool. Yeah, I think it's one of the few crypto blog posts, pieces, whatever, that I saw on Hacker News actually end up there and, and get somewhat popular. Were Normally, Hacker News is really crypto-averse.
2: <laughs> yeah, Hacker News hates crypto. And, and most of the comments were like, crypto is stupid, but this, this is kind of fun. Um, so I, thought that, that, I was like, I'll take it.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> maybe we wrap up and say, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dan.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And looking forward to your next story of visiting some part of the dark forest that is Ethereum. and to our listeners thanks for listening
1: thanks for listening